Welcome to the It's Hard to Know podcast, a podcast about PMA, mental health, finding and staying on a path in a world that makes it pretty difficult to do so. I'm your host, Michael Hank Renfro, and thanks for joining us today. All right, welcome to episode two of the It's Hard to Know podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, First and foremost, I want to say thank you to everyone who listened to episode one uh, with Chris Walker. Uh, For those that left a rating or even better, texted me or sent me a message uh, that that shared that something about that conversation connected with them, uh, particularly around Chris's discussion of uh, how he dealt with grief and loss uh, in such a positive and and inspiring way. So uh, all the credit goes to Chris uh, for that. It's Tuesday, May 19th. And for those that know me, you know that I typically travel uh, every week for work and I have been home for 66 days, uh, which has been kind of wild rarely was home for more than six days at a time before this and to now be home for 66 days has just kind of been bizarre and i live down in texas and the governor yesterday basically said everything is open back up so it's going to be really weird uh, to be home like a normal person uh, with everything opening up around me and not traveling and, and just working from home. Weird, but you know I am very fortunate that I have uh, a job that I can work from home and have been able to do so the last 66 days. I am itching to get back out on the road and travel and get out and do the real work that I, uh, I love to do. But one of the you know unforeseen benefits of these last 66 days is that I've, it's forced me to uh, start to confront things that I had put to the back burner. It's forced me to finally adopt habits that were really difficult to adopt while being in different cities, you know, multiple, multiple cities a week, you know, it's hard to get into some routines and, and, and rhythms, form good habits. And, you know, the first two weeks that I was home, that was not happening. I was um, eating a lot of crap and drinking a lot every night um, and not exercising and just feeling like the whole situation was shit and that I hated it. And, you know, it was just going to be this, this depressing time, which it was, I mean, you know, 92 some odd thousand people have died. I mean, that's horrible. It is depressing. And, You know, as I was socially distancing and starting to really look at myself, I had to really be serious about addressing, you know, things that I dabbled in but was never that serious about addressing before. So all in all, the last 66 days have been pretty good, if not lonely. Um, And maybe that loneliness was actually a good thing. You know, I don't know. Uh, if I would have uh, gone down some of the, the roads that I've gone down the last 66 days, if I had been home, but also had the opportunity to go out and kind of do what I want. And so it's been good overall. Uh, it'll be strange to watch the world 
uh, reopen. Part of being home for the last 66 days has really forced me to confront in a serious way some of the things that I've been running from for a very long time. And I always like to be on the move, even when I'm not traveling for work. I like to be gone. I like to be go, go, go. I like to do things. I like to have multiple projects going on uh, between work and school. It's staying busy gives me a lot of opportunity to not address things. Thankfully, due to Zoom uh, and other technology, I was able to find a therapist during this time and, and kind of double down on that, which has been great. It's also given me a lot of time at night to read, to seriously read. I always read. I mean, I typically read, uh, you know, 50 to 75 books a year. And I think I've read at least that many this year so far because uh, most nights and evenings I don't have anything else to do. So it's allowed me a lot of time to explore in my mind. And so there's going to be several uh, episodes coming up where I explore some things that I've run from. And it's time. I'm 39 years old. I can't run away from things forever. And this episode is going to primarily be about my brother and his death. Uh, but I do want to hit on a few things before that and kind of weave some things together. Uh, first and foremost, this is not any sort of advice about how anyone should approach their own mental health or if they're feeling suicidal, you know, this is not the place. Stop now uh, and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, 1-800-273-8255. I've never had to call it, but I know folks who have, and I know veterans who have called the crisis line and it has saved their life. So um, don't be afraid to reach out for help. All right, let's start the show. thought a lot about suicide over the years. Thankfully, not my own, except one time, and I'll come back to that later on. I think anyone that's a veteran probably knows more people than the average person, knows more people that have killed themselves, taken their lives. Sometimes it's by force, a gunshot wound to the head, hanging, something dramatic. Sometimes it's just utilizing drugs and alcohol to a point that the user knows that the amount of drugs and alcohol they're taking is going to take their life. It's going to end their life. I can clearly remember, I can visualize being in the National History Museum in D.C. when I got the call that a friend of mine took his life. And it was such a shock because I had just seen this guy like two weeks earlier. We ate at this little Thai restaurant in DuPont Circle. And I can't understand the mindset that he was in 
but I step back as an observer and I look at the place where, where this guy was at and I'm just left bewildered after he took his life. He, or it was discovered that he had planned his own funeral, had planned uh, to ship his body back home. His apartment was uh, packed up and, you know, he put a, he put a bow on his life that unfortunately ended way, way too early. He was such a joyous and happy person, or at least, you know, so we thought. That was really a big surprise. You know, it was kind of one of those, he, he, he took his life. Holy shit. I can just remember sitting on a bench in the museum crying. It's unfortunate when anyone takes their life. But I want to talk a couple minutes about one person and then tie it to this Frank Turner song and then ultimately talk about my brother. When I moved to DC in 2002, I was, I had never been to DC before. And what I wanted to do more than anything, uh, you know, I, I, first on my list was not the White House, was not the Washington Monument. It was checking out the Discord House, going to the 930 Club, going to Fort Reno Park, seeing all these places that I knew about because of music, because of punk, because of hardcore. That was important to me. And as soon as I, I had been in DC for just a couple of weeks, maybe before I went to my first show and it was a bad religion show at a now defunct venue called nation, uh, which is where the Nats stadium is now. So that tells you how long nation has been gone. Soon after that, I guess I went to my first show at nine thirty club and I like everyone who goes to a show at 9.30 Club, saw Josh, Josh Burdett. He was a staple of shows in D.C. I mean, he worked at the 9.30 Club, ultimately as manager, bouncer extraordinaire, kind of everything. Uh, but if you went to shows in Baltimore, you went to shows in Philly, you went to shows in Richmond, you went to Caps games, you were likely to see... Josh there. And Josh was hard to miss. He was a large man with a lot of tattoos and big gauges in his ear. Couldn't miss him. Now, Josh and I weren't friends. This isn't about that. But he was a staple of the music scene in D.C. and beloved by many artists, many bands, many rappers, many country music artists, basically anyone that played at 930 had an interaction with him. And unfortunately, he took his life in September of 2013. I remember waking up that morning and reading the news and seeing this and just being blown away again that 
this guy who was so, uh, you know, revered and loved in the community was suffering so much pain and so much loss. And, you know, celebrities take their lives. Celebrities overdose. So that's nothing new that a that a popular figure would would lose their life but i don't know maybe it was because he was you know we were close in age or we you know liked the same music or it just it kind of it hit hard and i mean it hit a lot of people hard and again we weren't friends i didn't know him it was just you know you see this person back in those days you know i used to go to shows two, three nights a week. So I, you know, I saw him hundreds of times and then he was just gone and it, it didn't make sense. Suicide never makes sense. None of this shit makes any sense. Fast forward to June of the following year, June of 2014, me, my buddy Dave and 2000 other people are seeing Frank Turner play, uh, I think it was a two-night stand, and I don't know, I can't remember. Uh, Frank Turner was playing at 9.30, and towards the end of the show, or later in the show, he dedicates this song to Josh. And, you know, there are a lot of times where you'll be at a show, and the artist, the band, We'll ask people, you know, be quiet. This, you know, we'll play this mellow song or this serious song or whatever. And rarely is it actually quiet. You know, you can listen to bootleg recordings or just live recordings and you'll hear bar noise and glasses clinking and all that stuff that, that goes on kind of background noise in music venues. And this time it was actually pretty quiet. And Josh plays... Or, or Frank plays this just heartbreaking song and people are crying, you know, a room full of, uh, oh, it's a mixed, I mean, it's Frank Turner, it's a mixed crowd. So there's old punkers there and, you know, younger kids, but, you know, even all the old punkers were, were crying. And that song, Song for Josh, ultimately ended up on Frank's uh, next album, Positive Songs for Negative People, which I want to say came out in like 2015 or 2016. Uh, so like a year or two later. These dates may be completely off, but that song that song hit really hard. And there, there are so many lines in it uh, that, you know, certainly speak to Frank or any body who was in a band that that came through and knew Josh and Frank or the band's relationship uh, to Josh and the 930 club which is a you know it's a very popular well-loved music venue so listening to this song standing next to my buddy Dave crying tears rolling down our faces being this sad kind of heavy thing. And there's there's a couple lines that, that have really stuck out to me. And, and one is just the way this, this line ends a verse. If 
Frank says, and it kills me to think for a second that you felt alone. And whenever I think about anyone that has taken their life or is overdosing, I, the, the part that kills me the most is that that second where they felt alone or that second where they may regret the decision that they've made. Frank goes on to say that you can measure the mark of a man on the day that he dies and the mixture of memory and wreckage that he leaves behind. And reading through tweets from that day, you know, outpouring of support from, from people in the DC community and bands, um, you know, around the world, I, I think you can measure the mark of a guy like Josh Burdett by saying that he left an indelible mark on DC culture and punk rock culture and 930 club for sure. So why am I talking about Josh? I mean, two reasons. One, it was just such a surprise. And it was, I think, the first time outside of veterans where I looked at someone who I thought had all the community and all the support in the world and took their life. And second, it made me step back and and think about people and a community of of music and musicians and, and people at, at clubs and venues and realize that things aren't always how they appear. Just because someone seems happy doesn't mean they're happy. And I, th- I knew that, right? You know, I'm not an idiot. I, I know that. But I think maybe to that point I had been insulated in my thoughts about suicide because the only people that I knew had killed themselves and, and there was some sort of connection to their, their veteran status or their military service. Or maybe it had nothing to do with their service, and but they were still veterans. And I could easily say, that's a veteran suicide. This is another suicide. It's really... You know, I I sat down and made a list of people in the last decade or so that have taken their life. And I'll read some of the names. Chester Bennington, Chris Cornell, David Foster Wallace, Anthony Bourdain, Vic Chestnut, um, Kate Spade, Robin Williams. These are the, the people that just came to my head immediately. And then thinking about, you know, people that have overdosed and again, same last decade or so and just off the top of my head you know philip seymour hoffman dd ramon lane staley of course that one goes a little further back um john entwistle um old dirty bastard (laughs) amy winehouse prince michael jackson no one is immune from whatever mental health challenges that they're facing that lead them to ultimately take their life or get so down in a hole with drugs and alcohol that death is inevitable. And that leads me to my brother's story. I touched on this a little bit in last week's episode with Chris, but my brother Blake died on August 21st, 2016. He was 28. He'd be 32 if he were here today 
and I struggle to come up with the right words to describe how I feel about him, how I feel about his death. I, the only thing that I can easily say is that I fucking miss him and that I think about him one reason or another almost every day something pops in my head and I think about him and it doesn't have to be big I can just be listening to a new song or watching something stupid on YouTube and think my brother would find that funny Blake would find that funny it's obviously some days hit harder you know the anniversary of his death holidays his birthday you know he had his troubles and he was a good kid though i mean he truly you know, when he wasn't high <laughs> was a was a good fun person to be around he cared a lot about me he cares cared a lot about his his daughters he was a good father he didn't you know he wasn't high when the kids were around you know he tried to control you know that as much as he could but when he was high he was a motherfucker i mean he was a motherfucker to deal with I, you know, looking back, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy that I had, for whatever reason, the foresight to, you know, be able to divorce his behavior when he was high from him as an individual. And I had no problem telling him he was acting like a piece of shit when he was high. The foresight piece was not thinking that he was a piece of shit because he wasn't my brother was born with a kidney issue and had surgery for his kidney when he was a young kid i don't know like maybe two and he had some kidney problems later in life and uh, when he was in his late teens and at some point had broken his wrist or something and during both of those episodes, experiences, encounters with the, with the medical system, with the healthcare system, he was given large quantities and large doses of painkillers. And this is a kid that had some mental health issues and had some depression issues. He should not have been given those drugs. But when you give those drugs to someone who has mental health issues or has depression issues and those drugs bring euphoria or a false sense of happiness to your life ease the pain lessen the burden lessen your worry well when the prescriptions run out you're going to find another way to get high and this is a tale that is all too common in the last decade his doctors had no problem creating the monster, creating the addiction, or at least feeding the addiction. But 
on the back end, there's not much help. When you're, I mean, I listed all the names of, well, not all the names, but the names that popped in my head of people that overdosed in the last decade, 15 years or so. And those were people with infinite resources, infinite money, infinite access to the best mental health services that this country or this world has to offer. And what is there for a poor kid from Memphis? Feed the addiction, create the monster, no cure, no real opportunity for mental health treatment. My brother battled with this for a long time. And I think later in his life, in the last two years, he got really good at lying to me about how things were going. I think at that point in his life, he was so concerned that I would shut him out of my life or eventually think he's a piece of shit that he just hid how bad things were for me. I honestly thought he was doing better after the last round of treatment or the last rehab detox that he had gone through. I was wrong and I didn't see that there was more there. And that's a guilt that I have. I have a lot of guilt and I know that having that guilt solves nothing that you know, even someone like my mother who was there for him when damn near everyone else had given up on him has her guilt. And there is literally nothing more that she could have done for him. I mean, she she did more than could be expected. But I have guilt that I didn't see. I have guilt that, you know, I didn't call more or... I have, hell, I have guilt that I left home, you know, when he was 14 and moved halfway across the country and I wasn't there to be his brother, at least not in person. And you know what? None of this would have maybe made any fucking difference whatsoever, but it's still my guilt and I still carry it. I remember the night that he died, I was so determined and I was so determined to do two things. One, ensure that when we had a funeral for him, that it was going to be as fun (laughs) as a funeral could be, that it was a celebration of life and not a celebration of death. And that two, whatever was said at this funeral was a celebration of that life that his last moments weren't defined by this tragic ending and you know even at the funeral in the eulogy i told everyone to think about the worst thing in their life and ask themselves if that's what they'd want to be remembered by if that's the enduring memory that you would want people to have about you if you died tomorrow And of course, no one wants that. So I challenged everyone to think about the positive things 
in his life. And I think about that all the time. Two really enduring memories for me are, one, I had uh, a back fusion in 2015 and started taking painkillers after the surgery. And he was so concerned that I was going to get addicted to painkillers and end up in the same situation that I was in, that, you know, he's calling me (laughs) and lecturing me on the dangers of uh, opioids and, you know, painkillers. Meanwhile, you know, he's doing heroin. Um, Again, fortunate that I don't have that... um, that addictive personality, but it speaks to his nature as a caring and loving person that that was his biggest concern at that moment. Another memory that sticks out to me is when he found out that I was sexually abused by a neighbor when I was a kid, you know, his first thought was, I'll go fucking kill that motherfucker. And I still have, I still have the, the, the messages where we went back and forth on that. And I, I kept saying, Blake, you know, I appreciate that, but you're going to do nobody any good in prison. So please don't. And he wrote these just beautiful messages about how he thought that I was strong and brave. And it killed him to think that. I was carrying that around and that that was something that burdened me and hurt me. Again, concern for me more than anything else. You know, the last week of his life, and I'll say, you know, I don't, you know, there wasn't a suicide note or anything like that, but, you know, I think two things lead me to believe that he chose to take his life. One, is that a week before he died, he had overdosed, and my mom found him and got him to the hospital, and he told her that, you know, he had reached the end and, you know, had kind of lost his will to live and that he wanted some songs played at the funeral and that, you know, she should ask me and I'll, I would take care of it. And two, the, the day that he ultimately died, uh, he had set up this like, pallet and some blankets in the garage and um, the coroner said that he took a, you know, a, a dose of heroin and a cocktail of drugs that, you know, any addict would know would, would kill them. And I guess, I think he, you know, went out to the garage so it would be, he wouldn't be found um, as easily. And like Frank Turner says about, um, about Josh Burdett, it kills me. It fucking kills me to think that in those last seconds that he felt alone. And I can only hope, I can only, um, I can only hope that in those last seconds as he was thinking about the good things in his life um, or the things that he loved that my face or some memory of me popped into his head you know it was um it was really i I think you know we we don't do a good enough job while we're alive of telling people how we feel 
And I, you know, I, I mentioned last week on the episode with Chris that, you know, I've tried to make a, a bigger effort to do that um, post his death. And at the funeral, all of these people, <laughs> all of these people that were his friends, you know, came up to me and told me how much he talked about me and bragged about me and how proud he was that I was his brother. And I just wish that we had had that conversation um, between the two of us. I know he told me things like that, but I just didn't know the depth and gravity to how much he loved me. And I'm so thankful that, um, that I know that he shared that with others. Um, it's fucking selfish, but it, it certainly, you know, lessens, not lessens. It certainly, um, eases my grief to know that he loved me and knew that I loved him. You know, one thing that, that I do want to say that's kind of snarky is, you know, while he was in the hospital the week before he died, he was completely dismissed and treated like a piece of shit. He was treated like a, a useless junkie by the doctors and nurses who didn't give one fuck about him. I'm sure... I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. I shouldn't say that. But they were dismissive to his needs, dismissive to his preferences and his pleas for help. He he clearly stated to the either, you know, attending physician or one of the nurses that he didn't want to go home. He didn't feel safe to go home. And a social worker came and talked to him and said, you know, I'll call you, this was on a Sunday, I guess, when he was getting discharged. I'll call you Monday or Tuesday. We'll get you placed into a treatment facility. And you know what? They didn't fucking call. They didn't call. Well, they did call, actually. They called a couple days after he was dead. And, you know, uh, my mother got the call. And, you, you know, you can assume how well that went. But, you know, maybe that was the thing that was the last straw for him. I don't know. I have to think that a kinder and more compassionate healthcare system is possible, especially, and I don't want to take any blame away from my brother. He made his choices. He's ultimately responsible for those choices, but the healthcare system didn't help. And it created the monster by providing him drugs that he never should have had in the first place from the very beginning. I have to think that a kinder health system maybe could have saved his life. I don't know. Maybe things would still be the exact same. Who the fuck knows? But maybe. And that kindness, you know, there's been a lot of my life where I was an asshole, where I was driven by sarcasm and being a dick because those two things are a lot easier than being open and vulnerable. And... If there's anything that's that in from my perspective or my life that's come out of my brother's death that has been good for me is that it was at that point that I didn't want to be a dick and I didn't want to hide behind sarcasm. And 
I wanted to be more kind and I wanted to be more open. And I wanted to make sure that I told my friends that I loved them and that I cared and that I was there. The last enduring memory of Blake is a living memory. It's his three daughters. And I really love them. And it's, I see so much of him, especially in Emily and Blakely, especially in Emily, her, her facial expressions and her sarcasm. They are definitely her dad. And they're such awesome kids. And Olivia, you know, he's got these three daughters that are and will forever be a, a living tribute to his life. And I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy that um, that I get to be part of their life. Fast forward to May of 2019. Frank Turner is doing this four-night stand in Boston. And I go up to Boston. Dave, who was there, the Frank Turner show in DC when Frank debuted Song for Josh. Dave was there. And my buddy Tim, who lives in New Hampshire, was there. And I think it was the fourth night. It was the fourth night. I don't think it was. It was the fourth night that Frank played Song for Josh. We were all tired and we were standing in the back and the song starts playing. And I don't think I'd seen Frank play it since my brother had died. I'd seen Frank shows probably five or six times since he died, but I'd not seen him play that particular song. And I just felt my knees get weak. And there's a line, the last line of the song is, Brother, I miss you like hell. And... (laughs) As I was standing there, and obviously, or at least apparently to my my friends, overcome with emotion, they gave me comfort and put their arms around me and gave me hugs and told me they loved me. And I think that was the first time in person that I had outside of, you know, that period right around his death and the funeral, the first time I had expressed, you know, an overwhelming or an outpouring uh, of emotion um, due to his death. And I'm glad that I had friends there to give me comfort in that moment because we all need comfort. We all need a little more kindness and this very, not always unkind, but often unkind world. We all need kindness during this pandemic that we're in, where we don't even really know what the mental health implications uh, are. More kindness. If I can take away a couple things to summarize, you know, how I can live the rest of my life post my brother's death and honor his life and honor his memory, first is to be less of a dick. to be a little kinder in this world and 
I think I've done better at that lately. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. Second is to be the best uncle that I can be. And I hope that I do that. And then third is utilize his death as a way to engage physicians and nurses and allied health professionals in my professional life to show how listening and kindness and compassion could potentially save a person's life. So, brother, I miss you like hell. So if you made it this far this week, be sure to reach out to somebody and call them and tell them that you love them. I had a friend last year when I was talking about my brother tell me that he had lost touch with his brother and they hadn't had much contact in years. And after he heard me talking about Blake, he reached out to his brother. So if the story of my brother's death does any good for anybody, then I think that does wonders to serve his memory. So reach out and tell people that you love them. Try to be a little more kind. It's hard. It's not easy <laughs> to be kind. I'll wrap this up by referencing or returning to the reference I made earlier at the beginning about the time in my life that I thought about ending it all. And that was when I was nine and 10 and was being sexually abused by the pedophile asshole that lived in my neighborhood. That's the only time I've really given it any thought. I mean, I mentioned the back surgery, so there's certainly been times where I've been in physical pain where I thought, oh, fuck, it would be, if I died right now and it ended this pain, I would be okay with that. But I don't think that that's the same as wanting to die or wanting to end my life. So I'm thankful that, you know, I'm 39 and the sexual abuse was when I was nine and in the 30 years since it's not been something that's crossed my mind. And seriously, if it's crossed yours, get some help, see a therapist. The only weak person is someone who is too afraid to ask for help. There is nothing weak about getting help. There is nothing weak about sharing your feelings. And now it's 2020. You can see your therapist on Zoom. You don't have to go and lay on a couch anymore. You just log in two minutes before the session starts and you chat. I mean, shit, I've got a Tiger King background on my Zoom while I'm in therapy. So do it. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. You know all the standard nonsense, like, rate, all that good stuff, whatever podcast app you're using. Helps get the word out. Uh, you can reach me uh, at uh, Hank underscore It's Hard to Know on Instagram or by email at mhr at it's hard to know pod.com. That's Mike Hotel Romeo. All right. 
Take care, everyone. And remember, be more kind.